Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and today we'll be discussing the ultimate unity of all beings, of all things, and the importance of ethics in the Zen and yoga traditions. My guest today is Brad Warner, author of numerous books, including the book we will be discussing today, The Other Side of Nothing. A Soto Zen teacher, Brad Warner is also a punk um, bassist, filmmaker, and popular blogger who leads workshops and retreats around the world. In addition to his books, his writing appears in Lion's Roar, Tricycle, and Buddha Dharma. He hosts the Hardcore Zen podcast and presents frequently on his YouTube channel, Hardcore Zen. His website is www.hardcorezen.info. And again, you can follow him on social media, particularly on YouTube at Hardcore Zen. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Brad Warner. I'm really delighted you could join me on the podcast. Yeah, hello. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into our dialogue about oneness and ethics, let's begin, as we like to begin here, let's begin with a, a moment of um, being here, right here, right now. So let's begin by paying attention to our bodies. Where are our bodies in space? Whatever we're doing, if we're sitting or standing, walking, and in particular, feeling the surfaces that support our weight. And now let's turn our attention to the breath and just notice as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how that air has been warmed as it passes through our lungs. And then just staying with the breath continuing to follow our breathing. No need to change it, just follow the natural flow. Here's something to contemplate from Yogacharya O'Brien from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. All of life is energy. Our thoughts and actions can either lead toward freedom that liberates us from sorrow or toward involvement that brings suffering. With our every thought, word, and action, we move energy toward manifestation. Once we understand this spiritual law, we can be increasingly aware of the subtle influences we are setting in motion by noticing the intentions behind our thoughts, words, and actions. Do they intend to bless, uplift, encourage, or help? Or do they destroy, tear down, discourage, or degrade? Even the smallest act, 
done with a pure heart filled with divine love, blossoms, bears fruit, and becomes nourishment for all. Once again, Brad Warner, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm really delighted to have you on as a guest to discuss your book, The Other Side of Nothing, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being. I'm really delighted in particular because the yoga tradition, the Kriya Yoga tradition that I come from, is also a non-dual tradition that teaches that there is only one. So let's start with what inspired you to write this book about non-duality and ethics. All right. Well, um, what inspired me to write this book? It's 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 a lot of things. I've uh, I've been studying in the Zen tradition since I was about eighteen years old, and I'm fifty eight now. So that's forty years. That's a long time. Um, and the uh, the ethical side of the Zen tradition has always been a crucial part of it. The the supposed first sermon that the Buddha ever gave was about the Noble Eightfold Path, which is, I never can remember all of the, the eightfolds, but it's right action, right livelihood, right uh, speech, right, uh, right meditation, all of this stuff. It's basically ethical action. So the first thing he ever talked about publicly after he had his so-called awakening experience was ethical action. So this must have been tremendously important to him uh, if if it was the first thing he talked about. And so it, I decided that was the thing I wanted to write a book about. And as I started writing the book, I started working just on the basics of explaining what the, what the Noble Eightfold Path was and how he started uh, talking about it. So if you read the book, that's what it begins with. But as I was writing it, I realized that the only way you can understand what makes Buddhist ethics different from just any other ethical system is that it's underpinned by this idea of, of non-duality, that it's underpinned by this idea that everything is one. Uh, which is why, what what did I, actually, I've got the book sitting here next to me. I, I, I think I started the book with this weird sentence. You are the universe, but you keep punching yourself in the face. So stop doing that. That's all there is to say, the end. <laughs> That's the way, you know, after, after I'd kind of, that was, that was after I'd finished the book, I decided, oh, that's kind of the whole message of the book. So I just went back and put that on the first page <laughs> because I realized that's the whole, that's, that's, that's everything um, in a nutshell, just in a few sentences, because that's, that's really all there is to it. If you want, if you want the short version and that's kind of actually real reading that back, right now i realize that's kind of what the zen tradition is sort of famous for the zen tradition one one of the things that confuses people about the zen tradition is it's all full of these weird cryptic statements that people go oh what the what are you talking about these you know <laughs> just these weird sentences that that on the surface seem to make no sense at all but what they like to do in the zen tradition is is take um, you know these volumes and volumes of buddhist philosophy you know that that take up whole libraries and try to condense them into a single sentence 
Mm. And so that's what I tried to do with this book is try to condense the whole book into a single sentence. Mm. And that's, that's what you get. Uh So, so the way to understand what makes Buddhist ethics different from other ethics is it's based on this idea that there's, that the reason to be ethical is because there's no one else to harm except yourself. Mm. Mm. So I think it's in the uh, introduction to the book, uh, you begin by saying, you are not reading this book. I know some of you will read that statement and say, if you're going to start off like that, then I'm really not going to read this book. And I have to say, I just really laughed at that. And then you follow this with this philosophical outlook is what they call non-dualism. There is no you. There is no me. There is just one undivided non-dual something of which you and I are aspects. And the reason I wanted to read that part is that that oneness that you're talking about, that non-duality, is really also the root of the yoga tradition. Yoga also views the lack of understanding of who we really are, which the Sanskrit word is, is at least in yoga tradition, is called avidya. That's the primary cause of suffering and the main obstacle to our experiencing this oneness that we are. So clearly the Zen approach and the yoga approach really differ. But as I mentioned to you before we started our interview this morning, um, you know, there aren't that many books about non-duality. And um, the, this common view between Zen and yoga of non-duality is really why I wanted to have you as a guest on the show. So you further in the introduction, you talk about uh, choosing a birthday gift for a friend or for ourselves and what it reveals about our changeable nature. So did you want to go over that with our listeners? Well, that was just a, excuse me, that was just a metaphor that um, I, I kind of came up with while I was writing that, I think actually I was, I was in the middle of, uh, of trying to come up with a birthday gift for my wife or somebody when I was writing that and having a hard time and realizing that when you, when you do that, you're, you're trying to anticipate what somebody is going to want or what, you know, what's going to make them happy. And then if you, if you actually apply that to yourself, it's only a little bit easier to apply that sort of thinking to yourself than it is to apply it to another person. If I'm trying to think, if I'm, um, I don't know, what I do sometimes anyway, poking around on eBay, trying to find something that might make myself happy in two or three weeks whenever the eBay package arrives. I don't know, you know, this might not make me happy when it arrives. I might not want it anymore by the time, by the time it gets here. So you don't really know yourself any better than you know anybody else. And so we, we have this imagine, we have this uh, imagined person that we walk around with all the time who we call myself and we think we know that person, but we don't really. You know, right. it's it's just it's just almost as much of a a, a patchwork uh, image that we carry around in our heads as the patchwork image that that we carry around in our heads of of anybody else that we think we know in life. Right. And if we, it, it, at least when I came to terms with that and realized that, I'm like, oh, that's interesting because uh, because I think most of us don't even notice that aspect mm-hmm. and and uh, and when i notice that i'm like well then i'm 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 a little less um concerned about that that me 
yeah. when I realized that I don't know that me any better than I know, you know, my friend Joe, who I haven't seen since high school. <laughs> no, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't. That's know. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know. There was something that just tickled me about the way that you wrote about it. And I think there's all kinds of experiences that we can have about that. I mean, for example, I, I still on the inside really feel like I'm the same person as I was, you know, when I was in my teens. And yet when I look in the mirror, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that same person anymore. Yeah. I, mean, I look really different. <laughs> so anyway, I just thought it was great to point to how changeable it is. Change, you know, changes in our mental state, changes in our physical, you know, body. Um, and we, and yet we have this self and we protect, you know, this self. Um, in fact, you write the fact that you and I don't exist is a good reason to stop treating each other as badly as we humans tend to do. Mm-hmm. Didn't know if you wanted to expand on that. Well, I think a lot of our, a lot of the trouble that we cause each other and that we cause ourselves is based on that, that idea of trying to protect and, enhance to that that self and, and and sometimes it's even even trying to cut down that self sometimes if i if i feel that i'm so bad or so rotten that that's a way to kind of uh, uh, enhance the self too it's, it's this kind of funny trick that some of us play like i'm so bad i'm i'm the worst is like the greatest way to enhance your ego too you know so we can we can do it both ways right it's just that i i see a lot of people in the the sort of spiritual world doing that other trick you know they they'll go i'm i'm unworthy or i'm not good enough or whatever and 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 you realize oh that you're just doing the trick in the opposite direction you know right. you could be you could be puffing yourself up and going i'm the greatest thing in the world but you're you're right. you're doing i'm the worst thing in the world but you're doing the same thing right. so but but we do we do this we we're doing all this stuff for the sake of an imaginary character and when you realize that it is an imaginary character, that it could just as as well be a character in a in a novel, that uh, that that once once I started coming to terms with that myself, then I stopped wasting quite as much energy on on doing that. Mm-hmm. It, but but old habits die hard, so it's not yeah, to say. That once you have the intellectual understanding of that, then everything is going to be great for you from from then on, because it because it it won't be, but it makes things a lot easier, and mm. and that and that lifts a huge amount of burden, and and I think if more people started to understand this, uh, I, I think I think as more people start to understand this. I think the world becomes uh, better. So that that's why I like trying to spread the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, for myself, when I can view myself that way, which I am, as you just said, clearly not always successful at, but it, it just makes things easier. It makes conflict easier. Um, if I can realize, if I can take a step back, I guess that's what mm-hmm. I'd say is it allows me to take a little step back you know, which is, which then kind of greases the wheels of all social interactions, if you can, you know, if you can do that. So I wanted to um, mention uh, something that I actually hadn't known until I read it in your book, which is that the word Zen actually comes from the Sanskrit word dhyana. And that's another overlap between yoga and Zen Buddhism is the practice of meditation. Dhyana in Sanskrit or, you know, meditation is one of the eight 
uh, limbs of uh, classical yoga, in addition mm -hmm. to being a very important, you know, part of Zen Buddhism. Um, in both traditions, meditation is a primary practice to directly experience oneness or this non-duality that we're talking about. And as you point out in the book, the historical Buddha spent most of his life teaching meditation to all types of people. Would you say a little bit about the role that meditation has played in your life? Well, yeah, it's been it's been huge, and yeah, you're you're right. Uh, Diana is just it, it's it's the way uh, words kind of change as they travel through different cultures and language. So basically, the Japanese pronunciation of Diana is Zen, but you know it goes through hundreds of years of changes as it travels the world. And for me. It, it it was it was a big deal. I I came across it when I was a I think of either a freshman. It was either the, my first or second year at at Kent State University in Ohio, and I I, I took this class called Zen Buddhism, on on kind of a whim. I, I think I was a I don't know an art or history major. I changed my majors a bunch of times, but I was a punk rock bassist then and I'm a punk rock bassist now uh, although the band doesn't get together quite as often now as it did then but uh and and I was having a lot of difficulty in life as you do when you're a, a young person and looking for something stable and I'd read about meditation and I'd heard of it but I took this class called Zen Buddhism just uh, to learn the history and whatnot and see. I'd, I'd grown up partly in Africa when I was a kid. We, uh, My family spent a few, uh, about four years, almost four years, in Nairobi uh, when I was a kid. And I'd been exposed to Indian culture there because there's a huge Indian population in, in Kenya. So I've been fascinated by that stuff. And so I wanted to learn more about it when I got uh, when I got older. And so th there wasn't any classes on Indian religions and, and culture that I could find in the Kent State catalog. But I knew that Buddhism was a, a Japanese version of an Indian religion. So I thought, well, this is close enough. So I'll learn about this. And the first day of class, the teacher who became my first Zen teacher uh, taught us how to do zazen which is the form of meditation that uh, that you do in zen buddhism and we just did it for i think 20 minutes which seemed incredibly long you know i was like 18 or 19 years old and i was like oh my god is this ever going to end you know but but i was game to do it because i wanted to try it out but really i was i was i was surprised at how tedious and boring it was you know cuz cuz you know, I've been led to expect great things, you know, because I'd read a few things in, uh, you know, in books and magazines and whatever, you know, about about meditation. And I expected it, you know, I expected to, to see Vishnu appearing before my eyes or, or some magic or something. But really, you know, I was just sitting there looking at this stupid wall and, and going, you know, how come he doesn't ring the bell? You know, because he's just going <laughs> to ring a bell to end it. Um, but... I was kind of convinced enough that this seemed to be a good thing. So uh, he, uh, Tim, the, the teacher, uh, said that you should practice this every day if you want to feel, you know, if you want to experience it properly. And I thought, well, okay, well, I'll just start doing this every day. So I started devoting uh, 10 or 20 minutes every day. And then I started devoting more time every day to it. And 
it what was interesting to me is after a while I, I you know I wasn't like gung-ho right from the start like I'm a meditator now so I would I would do it you know for a little while and then give up and it was in those times that I gave up that I would notice oh something's missing and so I think for the first few years I practiced that was a habit you know I would meditate for you know a few months or whatever and then be like okay well I, I'm I'm over that now I'll stop and every time I stopped meditating for a while I would notice that things would start to go wonky and and I, I can remember going through this process several times of going well what's wrong am I drinking too much coffee am I not getting enough sleep or what you know I'd think about all these things that I could possibly be doing and then I'd go oh yeah, I'm not doing that Zazen stuff every morning anymore. Maybe I'd better go back to it. <clears throat> and you know, I don't know how many times, 10 times or 15 times yeah. I went through this process. And and finally it clicked that I'm going to have to just do this the rest of my life if I want to, you know, and it wasn't as if, you know, everything became great because I was doing uh, Zen, uh, Zazen every morning, but everything became better when I did it not not like it became fantastic when I did it but there was definitely the days when I did zazen were better than the days when I didn't so I I knew that for sure so I just at some point you know a few years into going back and forth with it decided that I'm just gonna have to do this every day mm -hmm. and and that became my path and then Eventually, I uh, I took a teaching job in Japan. You know, it, I'd been doing the Zen practice for about 10 years by then and uh, took a teaching job in Japan, did that for a year, then moved. Uh, I was in rural Japan. I moved to Tokyo and then I met a, a Zen teacher in, in Tokyo who uh, encouraged me to ordain, you know, as a, as a, as a priest in, in, in air quotes for the people who are listening to the audio version of this, um, <laughs> because that, that's a whole, I, I don't want to spend an hour explaining what that means, but, but being a priest in, in the Zen tradition, isn't quite like being a priest in the Catholic tradition. It's, it's a lot, it, it can be a lot less formal. And my version was a lot less formal, but I did do an ordination ceremony. <clears throat> and so that really, you know, made it a, a bigger deal, but it was still, it, it just made everything uh, a little better. But after doing it for a number of years, uh, more, more drastic changes started to happen. So that, so the kind of things I had read about in books at the very beginning of my practice, you know, the more, the more sort of amazing things, those started happening after 10 or 15 years into the practice but all of that was sort of um icing on the cake what really got me to to practice was just just noticing that it made life uh, just uh, that little bit mm -hmm. easier and that but that that was a tremendous uh, uh thing you know and I don't even though I'm even though I'm sort of downplaying it I don't want to downplay it because it made it made such a difference Yes, no, absolutely. I would, I would echo that. I was laughing at your description of your first attempts to meditate and how even, even five minutes when you're first starting just feels like such a long time. Oh so yeah, it's, that you I have mean, your I, first twenty yeah. minute, you know, dose of it, and you're like, oh, ring the bell, ring the bell. 
<laughs> I mean, that was the thing I used to say in a lot of my early writings, which I've stopped saying, but maybe I should start saying would, would be just to emphasize how boring it is, because I think a lot of the literature leads people to expect excitement or or big, you know, big cosmic things to happen. And I think a lot of people give up because they're expecting too much. But but really, the the boredom of it is is actually what makes it great you know if you can learn to be bored that's actually a wonderful thing because it, it makes so much of life easier you yes. can just go through anything you yeah. know it's a real resource um yeah. the other thing is i was mentioning earlier about how um taking myself lightly and how that is a wonderful practice and it really has helped me in my life and the other thing that helps me do that is meditation you know mm. and when my meditation practice is strong um i have an easier time doing that and then when i when my meditation practice is not as strong i notice you know little annoyances like you mm. know things bother me more yeah than they used to you know when i'm when i'm meditating regularly so well you've already kind of alluded to this but you in zen buddhism there's there, there's a lot of contradictory statements oh, yeah. in zen buddhism and I, I actually i love the humor that you sprinkle through the book it's really great and you talk about the tv show ancient aliens yeah and the guy is like i'm not saying this was aliens but it was aliens yeah, <laughs> that yeah. contradictory you know statement um you, you know you use other examples as well and so for example you quote the diamond sutra and this is a quote what the buddha says is the perfection of wisdom is no perfection of wisdom thus it is called the perfection of wisdom yeah 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 <laughs> kind of love it so i would imagine that this is something that your students grapple with you know these contradictory statements so how do you support them in that you know in that process of yeah <clears throat> Yeah, a lot of it does sound like I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens, <laughs> which which I, I I love that show. I don't take that show too seriously, but I watch every episode anyway, because I just think it's a hoot. Um, but uh, but it does sound like that. And and Zen is full of these contradictory statements. And my favorite um, Zen Buddhist author is this guy named Dogen. Uh, he usually only goes by the one name, Ahe Dogen, sometimes. But he uh, was a, a what, 13th century. He, he wrote in the 1200s, a Japanese author and his uh, and monk. His his uh, writings are full of these uh, contradictions where he'll just say one thing and then say it's opposite. The, the Diamond Sutra, I actually pulled the quote from the Diamond Sutra because it's a lot more. It, you can see it right there. You know, the one quote that you pulled out, the Diamond Sutra is full of stuff like that. Um, but Dogen's stuff is full of that. And, and he's just pointing out, and the Diamond Sutra is also pointing out, is that there are always multiple ways of looking at any situation. And every situation contains its opposite. We're used to thinking of things in, in logic, you know, in terms of logic. I guess it's Aristotelian logic. I, I was a philosophy major for a semester, but I, I changed because I couldn't follow <laughs> you know, all, those, all those terms. So forgive me if I get them wrong. But we are used to thinking in terms of that kind of um, classical logic, which says that that things cannot be their opposite. But what and and that existed in the in the Far East too, their own version of that. 
But what Dogen is doing and what the Diamond Sutra is doing is saying that that kind of logic does work in its in its place. But what you have to realize is that the real word is world is actually contradictory. You know, that we our brains are set up to work in that kind of linear logical fashion. And that does help us get through life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's a very useful thing to do. But that's just a, a trick that our brains play to to make to help us organize things that's not the way the real world works the real world is just full of contradictions and we we have to understand that if we want to actually live a realistic life if we if we stick to logic in in that very strict sense we're going to always run up against these contradictions. And if we try to force uh, these contradictions to, to go away, well, they won't go away. <laughs> you know, they actually won't go away. And we're going to, we're going to be fighting against reality. Mm -hmm. So the Buddhists, when they do this kind of thing, um, even though it's, it's difficult uh, to understand they're they're trying to put into words they're trying to use words in a way to try to point out the absurdity of language itself because language itself even though it's a useful tool even though it's probably the thing the the one single thing that made the human species so successful you know on earth among animals you know they made us the dominant species on this planet uh, it's it's also our undoing because it it it's just a trick, and that's what uh, these these uh, pieces of illogic that get thrown into Buddhist philosophy are trying to do. They're just trying to say, look, the, this is just a, a trick mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that you're doing with your brain, and look at the real world. It isn't that logical. It isn't. It doesn't really work that way. You know, it, yeah. it's not really that way. Well, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear your perspective. When I think about uh, the the um, conundrums, we mentioned that one, but, you know, Zen koans are a whole practice, you know, mm -hmm. of reflecting on these, you know, on these um, riddles. And it seems to me that, um, I mean, my own experience of oneness, when I have it uh, in meditation, is it's not an it's not through a mental process it's a direct experience yeah. yeah and so in a way it seemed to me that these zen riddles or puzzles or the way that they're phrasing things it's kind of like throwing your mind up against a wall again and again and again until you can get beyond it because you can't get there mm -hmm. through thinking you can't think yourself yeah. to oneness you really you just really can't um and yoga has other practices that um that help us get to that point it's different than it is zen but again you can't it, it's not that you can think your you can't think your way there i guess is what yeah. i wanted to say yeah yeah and that's and that's also i mean that's another way of, of stating that point you can't you can't think yourself into it so there's no there's no way to describe it in words and that's one of the things they're trying to do with this right. this absurdity but, but one of the things my teacher liked to point out was uh, that he liked to say that the, the Zen koans were not presenting something that was illogical, even though I just said that. Uh, they, they, were, they had their own logic. They, yeah. had, they had a logic yeah. that was, 
was reasonable within itself, but it was not the standard sort of, I don't know if it's Aristotelian, it's not the standard sort of classical logic that we're used to, but it was actually presenting to you a logical way of understanding things. And, and I think that's true after working with it for years when I read those uh, those koans now, I can go, oh, I see. There, you know, I I can see what they're saying uh, much easier than when I first tried to uh, access that sort of logic. I'm going to just take a pause here as a reminder. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yoga Hour, and today I'm here with Brad Warner, Soto Zen teacher, punk bassist, filmmaker, popular blogger, and host of the Hardcore Zen podcast and author of the book we're discussing today, The Other Side of Nothing. You can find out more about Brad, his books, and programs at his website, hardcorezen.info. We will be posting this program and all of Brad's links on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can sign up for our mailing list. So Brad, getting back to our conversation, the Vedas are a common source for both Buddhism and yoga teachings. And the, the um, I was seeing a lot of similarities when you were writing about different uh, precepts in the um, Zen tradition, you know, with some of the things that are ethical principles in the yoga tradition. Mm -hmm. So the first two limbs of the eight limbs of yoga are the restraints or yamas in Sanskrit. Um, and those have to do with ethical rules about how we um, should relate with others. And then there are the observances or niyamas is the second limb of yoga. And those are ethical guidelines that help uh, us, they guide us in how we should behave with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So um, the five yamas are harmlessness, truthfulness, non-stealing, uh, non-excess or restraint and non-attachment. And then the five niyamas or ethical principle about ourselves are uh, cleanliness, contentment, self-discipline, self-study and self-surrender. Mm. And again, I was just struck as because you in the book, you really go through both the Eightfold Path and the Ten Grave Precepts. Um, and I was seeing a lot of overlap. Obviously, it's not the same. I'm not saying it's the same, but it was interesting mm. to see how much ethical, how many of ethical principles really lined up between the two uh, systems. So could you give an overview of Eightfold Path and the Ten Great Precepts? Maybe just choose one or two that are important to you, just to give our listeners kind of a flavor, you know, of what we're talking about. And I realized that this question alone could take the entire rest of the conversation <laughs> as it takes up most of your book. But I thought you might want to give listeners or just a glimpse. Yeah, it's always hard for me to, to do this because I never remember them. I never I used to carry a, a card. There was some <laughs> Buddhist center that I visited to give a talk at that that uh, passed out that the, the wallet size card cards with the uh, eightfold path on one side and the uh, 10 precepts on the other side. But I lost it. Now I don't have it. Wait, wait a minute. Are you telling me you're no longer a card carrying Buddhist? <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, I don't carry the card anymore. <laughs> It's always, it's always hard to it's always hard to remember them all, but that well, just but, you know, these are just you know, the the other thing you you mentioned the the similarity between the eight uh, the eight limbs of the yoga path, <clears throat> and I imagine I don't know all the history of it, but I think these things were being developed around the same time because uh, Buddha supposedly lived around twenty five hundred years ago, and you know the timelines are always kind of crossing, and everybody 
all these systems like to claim, you know, they're more ancient than the other one, you know, and they, they like to read their history back further and further into the, into the past. But, you know, I think they were all being developed around the same time. And it's one thing that's interesting to me is the 10 grave precepts in Buddhism are, uh, are also very similar to the 10 commandments in, in Christianity. So that in, and Judaism, so they're, um, so there's, some overlaps there you know there's don't kill don't i'm looking at my book to remember don't kill don't steal uh don't uh don't lie those are those are don't be covetous those are all in in the um in the 10 commandments too so those are those are in the 10 buddhist precepts so i don't know the one the one that i think is interesting um to me there's there's this idea of right um sorry free giving uh, which is comes under the heading of right livelihood sometimes, right. which which I I thought dana is often the the word that they use, especially in um, yoga studios. They often like to use this as a euphemism for for um, donations because <laughs> it kind of sounds like <laughs> donations. I've used it too for the for that, but um, <clears throat> dana just means charity or giving. But there's a um, I, I can't remember actually. I found it when I was writing the book and I can in in the book, I cite chapter and verse, but there's a passage in uh, Dogen's writing where he, he says that even working for a wage is originally a, an example of free giving, mm-hmm. which I remember when I first came across that was a point where I was working in Japan for a, a film production company. And I actually really liked this company, but at the time I was having a hard time uh, working for them. I was having, I wasn't getting along with my, my boss and I was having just a real difficult time, so difficult that I was thinking of quitting. And I happened to come across this passage where Dogen says even working for a wage is is originally a form of free giving. Mm-hmm. And I really thought about this and I thought, oh, that's kind of true. It, it's it's as if we we put ourselves in this situation in which we we sort of naturally as social animals want to give back to the community right you know we 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 want to give something to to the other community of of you know highly developed apes that we are but you know, over the years, the the process has become complicated, you know, and so we've invented all these weird ways of making that happen. And, you know, even 800 years ago in Dogen's time, it had already turned into this thing where, you know, you go to work for a boss and then he gives you money at the end of the day, right? But originally what we're actually doing is giving back to the community, you know, to that, and that's what we want to, to, to do. That's our natural inclination as social animals is to give back to the community. But we've developed this weird system, you know, in which it becomes, you know, a paycheck. And if we understand that what we're actually doing when we do that is following our natural inclination to give back to the, the community of our fellow animals that we are then it makes it a lot easier you know because we 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 
you know, I, at the time that I read this was all tied up in the, you know, why do I have to work this job just to, you know, pay my rent? And, you know, yeah, you know, that kind of thinking that, that you get into. And, uh, and then I, I, I stepped back after reading that and going, well, you know, what I'm doing actually underneath all of that is I'm just trying to give back to my, you know, fellow humans Right. Uh, and and then I thought, oh, you know, I I guess I'll just go back <laughs> and do some more of this, and it made it a lot easier. So wow. that one uh, really helped me out. That's that's you know, if if I had to pick one that was really helpful, they they've all been really helpful to me. But that one, you know, just stands out in my mind right now today. Yeah, no, that's great. And this idea of uh, right livelihood um, is. Um, in in the yoga tradition, there's uh, dharma, which I think obviously the Sanskrit word Sanskrit words are interesting because they have so many meanings. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a little bit different in the yoga tradition, but dharma is is kind of um, right living. It's really living for the sake of the soul. It's living in accord with these bigger you know principles. And then one part of that is uh, this right livelihood or your sva dharma, um, which is doing what is yours to do in the world and mm -hmm. it has that um that uh, potential that you just mentioned and then there's also the you know there's all kinds of complications to it so you write in you quote from this article in the book this was a, a tricycle article called why right livelihood isn't just about your day job by mm -hmm. krishnan venkatesh mm -hmm. and your quote is in our messy and entangled world it is impossible to separate what we do for a living from the larger system that makes living possible even professions that seem admirable and praiseworthy can be tangled up in negative consequences. A physician today is implicated in a dubious industry that often benefits corporations and shareholders more than patients. And as a physician, I can, I can say I've certainly seen that in my career. Um, and then he goes on to say, my own career as a professor at a private college is modeled with questions about the consequences of the debt these young people take on in order to study. Mm -hmm. So obviously, as you said, it has all of these, you know, layers, you know, over it, but it also has this bigger bigger, you know, you can frame it in a bigger way. It reminded me of the story of, it's probably an apocryphal thing, you know, but of, uh, you know, coming up upon, you know, workmen in the, um, you know, like today and their bricklayers, you know, what are they doing? They're laying bricks. You know, you come, you know, across that same thing, maybe, you know, in the middle ages, you know, what are you doing? I am building a cathedral. I am building a cathedral, you know, to, for the glory of God. So obviously that's really a different, you know, a different perspective and how you, you know, and how you hold that and in way that it looks at service, you know, service yeah. and how we, and, and just the interconnectedness that you pointed to, which um, I think about uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's, um, you know, holding up the paper, holding up a piece of paper, you know, and saying, in this paper is the cloud, you know, that gave the rain, you know, so that the oh, yeah. wood yeah. could grow. And then the people who, you know, who, um, who, you know, harvested that wood and then ground yeah. it up and made it into paper and all that. And then the people who brought it here, I mean, just this interconnected web yeah. that we're all a part of. So I didn't know if you had any anything else you wanted to mention about that. No, I think that's I think that's true. And I, I think there's a that interconnected web is is really important to understand. And 
I, when when you said that, I was thinking, yeah, you can hold up the paper. You can also hold up like a bag of potato chips and then yeah. think the same thing. Right. You know, and it, it's part of part of the Buddhist tradition in the Zen tradition is to be really, really respectful of food, you know, as a as a as a great example of interconnectedness, um, especially. And so to and to be and to be really careful and mindful about eating when you're when you're doing that. So so um i i think it is it is uh, good to notice that because you'll you'll be less you you'll be more careful about what you do you'll be more you'll be more mindful to use that uh much overused term you know everybody's everybody's happy about i mean i lo- i love the term mindful but but i i find that uh, you know it's it's been thrown around it's one of those terms that's great but then once you you overuse it it loses a lot of its uh, its impact sometimes but but um so when you're when you're mindful that when you're noticing that i think it it, it helps uh bring about a respect for for things and and i think that's that's one of the great, I, I, this might be a slight bit of a tangent, but I think one of the great things that the Zen tradition has, has taught me is, is to be respectful even of, of inanimate objects, you know, to be, to, to notice and treat things that that's one of the things we do is, is we treat even rooms uh, with respect. You know, you bow when you enter the Zendo as if you're bowing to a person um, because you're treating even the room that you're you're uh, using for your practice with respect so this this is um because it's all noticing the interconnectedness of it and i, I think if more people did that we'd be you know we'd be living in a, in a better world you know we wouldn't have so much trash you know around and, and you know we wouldn't have uh, so much disrespect for things and, and oh yeah and that would be nice yeah <laughs> Well, there's obviously so much that we could talk about. I was going to ask about one of the 10 grave precepts, I vow not to kill. Oh, yeah. Obviously, this aligns with the yoga restraint of harmlessness, which was, um, there's a lot of different ways. It's ahimsa is the the Sanskrit word, and it was Gandhi's uh, principle. um, And also um, kindness, just can be kindness. In the chapter called I Vow Not to Kill, you write about how not straightforward that this precept is. You write, there's a problem with the idea that thou shall not kill means you shouldn't kill anything at all ever. And that being a vegetarian or a vegan is the way to accomplish this. Even the strictest vegetarian or a vegan in the world ends up engaging in some form of killing in order to stay alive. Yeah. So would you say more about that, about the idea that, um, actually, I like this little quote, we should continually ask ourselves if we are doing all we can to be a worthy recipient of the lives that we are, uh, that are sacrificed so that we can continue to live. So again, we should continually ask ourselves if we are doing all we can to be worthy recipients of the lives that are sacrificed so that we can continue to live. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a hard question. And it's one that you could, you know, it's it's one of these questions you you kind of have to be um, careful about, I think, because it's it's you can get you can get to this. Certain people will take that question and it'll just keep them up all night and you'll, you'll just kind of drive yourself crazy with it. And you don't want to go that direction. I, I I'm I've been a vegetarian longer than I've been a Buddhist. You know, I, I 
<laughs> I, uh, that was that was the other thing that really uh, stuck with me from being around Indian culture when I was a kid uh, was uh, was like, oh, God, these people don't even eat meat. And I, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And that that was something that I was uh, as soon as I got old enough to make my own food choices, that was like, you know, I was really gung ho about that. And I became kind of self-righteous about it. But then when I encountered uh, Buddhism, the Zen Buddhists are kind of funny about vegetarianism because they're they're sort of um, well, there's there's all different uh, kinds of uh, vegetarians among Zen Buddhists, but the the sort of um, standard version of it is that they're that they're vegetarians for the most part, but not really very strict about it, yeah. you know, because they they consider it a higher principle to be. Uh, polite than to be vegetarian so they'll sometimes accept meat and and things and eat it if it's if it's the polite thing to do hmm. um, and and I thought oh that's really weird because you know that's the way my teacher was and I was like oh you'll you'll eat it sometimes <laughs> even though you're a vegetarian and 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 I and I couldn't fathom that because I was like, yeah, you must not have lard and the refried beans and all this stuff, you know, and all this, <laughs> you know, being being one of those guys about it. Um, so um, so, but but learning that, learning that anything you do, it, it's all very complicated. Because I, I was up at um, Tassajara, which is this uh, Buddhist uh, community up in Northern California. And they were having a real problem because they were having they they were a farming they were trying to be a self sustaining farming community, but what they encountered is that most of the fertilizers that they sell uh, contain uh, blood like they're using they're using uh, blood from slaughterhouses because it's a really great fertilizer and it's really hard to find fertilizer that doesn't contain this stuff and they were just trying to trying to figure out how. And, and, and what they found just that was like the just the tip of the iceberg. There was all sorts of things that uh, that they found that they couldn't be uh, strictly uh, vegetarian about if they wanted to have this self-sustaining farming community. And they had to kind of make all kinds of compromises. So it's 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 very uh, difficult. And you realize that that um, that you can't. You, you just can't get away from it. And one of the things my my teacher, my first uh, Zen teacher liked to say is that all of the precepts, like uh, the precept not to kill is a, is a great example. They're all koans. They're all impossible questions. Hmm. You, you can't keep any of them. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're if you're going to be if you're going to try to be really, really strict about any of the Buddhist precepts, you just can't. You're just going to fail. So. So you always try to keep them as like an aim mm -hmm. rather than trying to be to be really strict about them. There, there, there are always going to be points where it's better to just break the precept and and keep to the higher ethical meaning of the precept than to tr try to keep to the literal letter of the precept. Mm -hmm. But uh, most of the time, it's better to stick to the letter of the precept but <laughs> right there's because always otherwise be... you can start cutting corners yeah yeah, yeah. you don't want to cut <laughs> corners like that you don't want to use it as an you don't want to use that as an excuse to just right. be lazy about it right but uh you also don't want to drive yourself crazy and 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 this is what i see 
especially among the sort of uh, vegan crowd, you know, they just get so strict in their veganism that they become kind of jerks, you know, around it. And you're like, well, that, you know, now you're defeating the, the whole purpose of what you started out. You started out trying to be a vegan because you wanted to be better in the world, but you end up being worse in the world. So, so what are you doing? And that's, that's kind of the thing I, I learned is to hold these things a little bit more loosely, I think is, is, is important. Indeed. Well, unbelievably, we've come to almost come to the end of our time oh. together. Your last question is what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? This is always a tough one for me. So I don't know if people listening on the, the audio version didn't see me make a face there, but I did <laughs> because I was, I don't know how to encourage people. I did this retreat in Germany a few years ago where, where somebody came to me at the end of the retreat and said, your talks are not very encouraging. I can't do a German accent. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I, I don't know. So I, I just, I just feel like the, the, the thing I do is I just keep on doing this practice even when I don't feel like doing it. And, and to me, that's the most, that's the, the words of encouragement I, I give myself. So there are days when, like I, I said at the beginning of this interview, I committed myself to a practice of meditation early on. And there are, there are still days you know, 40 years into doing it, when I get up in the morning, and I'm like, I just don't feel like doing any zazen this morning. But I do it anyway, mm. you know, and, and that's, that's the attitude that's sustained me for for doing this practice is that is that I just do it, even if I don't, if I, if I don't feel like it, because I know that there's something um, it's, I've never regretted meditating. <laughs> You know, I've never I've never come out of a, a session of, of meditating where I felt like, oh, that was a big waste of time. You know, it was it's always been better at, at the worst it's ever been has been neutral. You know, I've I felt like, oh, you know, <laughs> OK, that was fine. You know, it's never been like uh, I never regretted it. Yeah. So so that's, you know, the the encouragement is is it's always going to be it's always going to be better to to meditate, to do a little bit of spiritual practice or whatever your practice happens to be. It's it's going to be better to do that than to not do it. And and that's you know, if that's encouragement, then then that's what I'll leave <laughs> with you. Wow. No, I think that's great. That's great. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of The Yoga Hour. My guest today has been Soto Zen priest Brad Warner, author of the book, The Other Side of Nothing. His website, where you can see a lot more about his other books and lots of other programs, is hardcorezen.info. We will have this link on our webpage at theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Brad Warner, for joining me today on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. For listeners, we hope you'll join the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There's daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m., the afternoon at 4 p.m., and Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. All those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang, a gathering of truth seekers at 10 a.m. Pacific each week on Sundays. There is an upcoming <clears throat> Um, nine-month course that you can check out on the CSE website, csecenter.org. That's going to be beginning uh, February 
19th, Sunday, February 19th, and there are going to be monthly meetings. It's called Live Your Spiritual Practice, 10 Practical Skills for Awakened Living. There's also going to be a Mahashivaratri celebration, a time of healing, awakening, and transformation with Yogacharya O'Brien, and that's going to be all day on Sunday, sorry, Saturday, February 18th. <clears throat> There's another podcast that might be of interest to listeners, the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. That includes presentations from classes and talks she has given. And there's an upcoming silent meditation retreat with Yogacharya O'Brien March 30th to April 1st on site at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. Again, you can check out these classes and lots of other offerings at csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I am delighted I'll be joined by Kate Johnson to discuss her new book, Radical Friendship. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, <clears throat> founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.